Well, good morning, and thank you, Wes, for those announcements. Well, I'm not Ross, uh, as is pretty obvious. Uh, he had uh, started out on uh, probably like last week saying, like, ah, I just feel kind of run down. Maybe it's allergies, I don't know. And then midweek, it started to go like, it's not like, you know, changing. And then it came to, I have aches. I have pains. I'm getting old. I added that part. But uh, he, he, he ended up being sick, and uh, I get the opportunity to come and preach uh, to you this morning, which I'm so thankful for. And we're going to take a step outside of First Peter in our series just for a little while, and we're going to go into uh, the Gospel of Luke. Okay, so if you want to go ahead and go to uh, Luke chapter 18... And it's going to be verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to read God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thusly, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I just want to invite just this space to be a place of stillness. A stillness that, that my heart needs. Lord, may this time be one in which we learn about your story. That we are not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Almighty God, I pray that, that my words, my weak, my fragile, my incomplete words would fall away and that your words would be lifted up. Most holy God, we know that you are, you are ready to speak to us. You're already speaking to us. So may we enter this time with open ears and open hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My children are book pushers. If you've ever come over to my house, what you are going to know is that you'll be welcomed in. And my kids, uh, James, who's three, and Eleanor, who's two, and um, I have another one. She's three months old. She's adorable. Um, they all are, but her especially. And <laughs> 
And they will immediately like be happy to show you the apartment space. They'll show you, um, James will probably want to show you his wall of Maverick posters. He'll want to show you his dinosaurs, perhaps offer you a pterodon or a Tyrannosaurus Rex to make you feel more comfortable. He may show you his basketball hoop where he shoots. And then you may feel this sense of like, okay, they did the deed and now they're going to let the adults talk. And inevitably, within a few minutes, you will feel a sharp pain somewhere in your lower body. I'm going to pray it's just the stomach, um, but sometimes people are not that lucky because my children are literally pushing books into your stomach. And they have, like, you could be someone that we just met or you could be like their grandparents and it is just immediate, my kids are going to make sure that they get a story read to them. And let me just tell you, this is not like, oh, it's the library, and they're going to respect our guest, and they're going to sit on the floor, and you're going to be sitting in the special reading chair, and they're going to sit crisscross applesauce, and they're going to be like, I'm ready to receive this story that you're going you're gonna to read to us. No, it is a full contact sport reading in my house. Some of you may be football parents, and that's how you get your aggression out. Some of you may have kids that are like wrestlers, you know, they watch WWE, FG, I don't know, I didn't do wrestling, but like that's how they get it. Not my children, my children are like, it's story time, let's go! Because they're like, sorry, that's super loud. Um, they, they want to climb over you, the storyteller. They want to get in the best position. They're jockeying against each other. Tears might be shed because they want to be able to see the page. They want to hear the words. They want to form a connection with the speaker of the story. It's beautiful. And let me just tell you, it's not just the two of them. I mentioned the third one. They are training her up. You can see that she is coming for you. You're going to have three of them if you come over to my house ready. And they, they show no mercy. Anybody sell essential oils? Talk to my kids. They will increase your order. I'm telling you. That's my son James. That's my daughter Eleanor, or Heather. Oh, I already did it. Yeah, that's right. I'm showing you pictures of my children. We're going there. <laughs> and by the way, yes, that is the way our apartment looks 99% of the time. If you ever come over and you see an apartment that doesn't look like that, don't go into our bedroom. That's why the door is shut, because it's all in there. <laughs> I show you this picture. I talk about story time, uh, not just as a cheap way to show off my kids, but because it, it speaks to us, right? We are hardwired to love stories. There's this guy named Brian Fickert, a uh, name you probably don't know, but you've definitely heard of his work. He was co-author of the book, When Helping Hurts. And he, he said this once, stories are powerful. The stories we believe, whether true or false, shape our entire lives, telling us who we are, who we were, and who we're becoming. You see, the stories that we believe, the stories that we're imbibing, they're not neutral. They're forming us. And as James K. A. Smith would say in a different way, the thing that it's forming you into, the story that it's forming you into, you may not actually like. You may not be aware of it. Jesus is a master storyteller. 
And we see it in the text this morning. It's short. But what we see are layers of stories that are formational. And as I was approaching this and as I was thinking through, there were three questions that popped into my head as I was thinking about it and preparing about it for you. And these three uh, questions can be broken down like this. What stories do the Pharisee and the tax collector believe? What stories do they believe? Second question is this. What does Jesus want to form us into? What story is he wanting to give us that we might be formed? And then finally, how can we be formed to what Jesus is wanting us to be? How can we make it our story? Okay, so what are the, the tax collector and the Pharisee's story they're believing? What does Jesus want to form us into? And then finally, how can we be formed to this and make it our story? Go ahead and go back to Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. And if you have an ESV Bible, what you'll see is that there's this uh, small note, uh, right? At, well, this is any translation. Um, but Luke is setting the stage here. This is Luke, like, adding a little note in verse 9. He's saying, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The good news about, one of the good pieces of news about this morning is that it is not going to be one where we're like, oh, I don't really sure what Jesus is talking about. It's like Luke is just like, hey, guess what? This is for self-righteous people, which I know living in Collin County, there are none of you in here that are self-righteous. Um, <laughs> but we go on to verse 10, and I really like how, uh, how Luke is going to move us through this, okay? So Jesus... Jesus is uh, at a point telling a story as he's engaged in his mission, his missional story. He's at the middle point. He's on the road that he's about to go to Jerusalem. And so when he's teaching against this context, we got to remember that he's telling these stories on the road heading towards his rejection, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection. That's what he's heading towards. But right now he's on a road trip. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to different followers. And what he's telling them are stories and parables. This is where you get some of the richest teachings in the gospel accounts. This is where we get the rich young ruler. This is where we get the prodigal son. This is where we get uh, the widow who's looking for the 99 coins. And then we've got this short section that we should honestly Consider one of the most important teachings that Jesus gives. And it's in a story. I love it. So um, <clears throat> we go on to uh, the Pharisee. And the Pharisee's story uh, picks up in verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. If you've got your uh, ESV, that's where I was going towards. You see the little, uh, the little number four by prayed. And I actually wish that they had kept it on the notes at the bottom, how they had kept it, um, this other verse. It's uh, uh, the Pharisee standing, prayed to himself. Luke is already setting up your expectations, and so is Jesus. So the Pharisee is standing, praying to himself, and it goes on, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Starting to see maybe a little bit of a problem with this prayer. Another pastor uh, paraphrased it to read like this. God, I thank you that I haven't fallen to what so many of my contemporaries have succumbed to. Sensuality, dishonest business practices, the gutter life of so many of the unchurched. You've met those people, haven't you? This Pharisee, for this Pharisee, his story is one rooted in observance in the greatness of his works. That's the story that is going to form him. And you know, it's interesting. He contrasts himself with three sinners. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. And I'm not an adulterer. You know, what do these have in common? These are actions of extreme power over the vulnerable. You know, if you extort someone, you are using your power to take from someone less powerful. If you're an adulterer, you're placing your needs and your desires above your spouse's, which is a violent act on such a fragile but such a good thing as the covenant of marriage. If you're unjust, you're skewing justice to meet your demands to meet your side. All of these things that he's comparing himself to are profiting at others' expenses. To make the Pharisee's heart even more clear, he says, I'm not these things, and then he's like, and I'm not even, a, I'm not a tax collector. So he, he's prejudiced. He's listing out these groups of sins, and then he's looking at this tax collector, and he's like, and then this guy over here. You know, I, I think that you could slide, like, anyone into that prayer space. And a Pharisee would have something to say. It could be the high priest. It could be his mother. It could be literally anyone. And he would still find fault. I think the only thing that would silence him would be a mirror. And that would only last for a moment because he's immediately going to be like, that frame is cracked. The frame could have been painted better. It's not the highest quality glass, you know. It's really not capturing my reflection. So we've stated his contrast, and he then explains not just the how of he's different, but the why. He wants God to know that he fasts twice a week. He gives tithes. Of all that he gets. And you get this feeling that like he's just listing and listing and listing and listing and listing all the things that he does that makes him so great. And, you know, I love the way that it transitions out of like the internal space of the tax collector or of the Pharisee, because it goes right to the to the tax collector. It's so abrupt. So if you read it like the way that I read it just a second ago, I think you'll find like some piece of humor in it. I'm going to go back up a little bit. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, it's like, the, like Jesus is just like, okay, okay, enough. 
Let's go to the tax collector, which to an original person in this first century context is just kind of like the tax collector. First of all, I'm trying to wrap my mind around like why a tax collector is in the temple praying, first off. And then secondly, we're going to go to listen to his thoughts, his prayers. Something weird about this story. We see as we move on in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off. I'm going to break for a second, and I want you to think of, go with me on this example. Say you live in a neighborhood where there's a well-known drug dealer. You pass him as you drive your kids to school, seeing him openly deal drugs and collect on people's addiction. You hear about friends and family whose lives have been violently turned upside down because a family member has gotten involved with that person, either as someone who's become addicted to the drugs or he's joined a gang to be a part of this uh, horrible thing. Imagine your car is broken into by a person looking to score money or something to sell to feed their addiction. And consider this also, that drug dealer, he's not even the main source of the problem. There is someone else providing those drugs that come into your neighborhood. He could be arrested or he could be killed. And those drugs are not stopping. He might be paused for a second, but they're going to come into an area. This is how people felt about tax collectors. Tax collectors were loathsome people. They were traitors. They were men who worked with the big bad occupying government in Rome. They were the ones that Rome would come in and assess a tax value, and then they would go and collect their underlings, their thugs. And then the only way that they got paid was to be able to extort money. So their tax collectors are going out taking money as part of their job, and then they're going to use extortion, violence, whatever they can, because if they don't, they're not making a margin. So you have the Israelites who are fiercely independent people who hate the fact that they live under Rome, and they hate having to pay taxes to a Roman emperor who considers himself to be God. He's an idolater. And then you've got members of your neighborhood going out and feeding this horrible, horrible thing. He wasn't so much a representation of these things. He was a symptom of it. No one ever looks at a symptom with kindness. You look at a symptom as something that needs to be ended. That's the way that Jesus' audience is hearing this story. They're looking at this character in the tax collector, and they're marveling at the fact they they were shunned from society. A tax collector walking into the temple is like walking into enemy territory. That's what makes the next turn of events so shocking. 
It continues on in verse 13. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. When you read that, how, how do you hear that? How do you hear the, the tax collector's prayer? Uh, in, my, in my Bible Belt, you know, kind of lifestyle, I have to be honest, I heard it, and I was just like, well, yeah. You should be praying those things. I think if I were a, a pious Jew living back in that first century, I'd be like, you better be praying for mercy from God and for me. But things aren't that simple. Things are more complex. So it'd be good for us to be here to look at where these two men are. The Pharisee is unchanged. He's a man apart, strictly through his own doing. He thanks God, which is to say he thanks himself for how good he is and how bad everyone else is. The tax collector, on the other hand, is remarkably changed. He's adopting the posture of those that he victimizes. Commentators point to his not looking up and beating his chest as signifiers of something important. He's embarrassed. He is filled with the understanding of his shame. Jesus ends this story with another twist. We have the, the completely uh, strange moment of the tax collector being in the temple, and now he's going to flip it on its head. It's one of Luke's favorite storytelling devices within his gospel account. He's going to inverse what you would expect. Jesus says that it's the tax collector who goes home justified and not the Pharisee. Now, we don't get to see what brought this story of change in the tax collector. Jesus doesn't consider it relevant. But something has sparked so powerfully that it's motivated action. What kind of action has it motivated? Consider that uh, he goes to the temple. We've already talked about that. In our, in our analogy of the drug dealer, this is like the drug dealer showing up at an HOA meeting. How's the neighborhood going to look at that guy? He prays earnestly, and he prays simply, and he's asking for what only God can give. He's adopting a humble posture of prayer. And in light of this, it doesn't matter what the spark was. Because it was real. It created some change. Jesus tells us the tax collector goes home justified. He has started to believe a new story. The tax collector knows he needs God's mercy. The Pharisee has no need for mercy. So that's our first question. Our second question is this. What does Jesus want to form us into? And we find it at the close of this uh, group of uh, text. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, there you go. God bless. <laughs> really, what Jesus is doing is he's telling us two stories. 
He's letting us in on two viewpoints of stories of two kinds of kingdoms. We have a worldly kingdom, and we have a kingdom that is of God. And we see this worldly kingdom actually play itself out in both characters. Look at the tax collector. This is a worldly, broken, dark kingdom that he has been empowered by. He can be vicious to people. He can become wealthy through viciousness. And guess what? He's not just kind of acting off on the sides. He's got the Roman Empire at his back, backing him up. That is a profoundly victimizing and broken kingdom. It truly is where might makes right. And this tax collector gets to be a citizen of it, a full-fledged citizen of it. Because he's become wealthy, he's getting worldly power and acclaim. And I don't know what the tax collector's view on what was to come, but it didn't matter. He was reaping the benefits of a worldly kingdom. But you know, there's also an attribute of a worldly kingdom in the very religious person of the Pharisee. This is a person who denies himself these opportunities to victimize others because he's victimizing God. He doesn't need God. He himself is God. Look at all that he does. Look at the beginning of his prayer. He's not just having like a bad day. He's in the temple going to worship. And his first words are, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. What is he thanking God for? He clearly goes on to show that he's done everything, and God's done, had no part of this. What an empty, hollow, awful thing. You know, the worldly kingdom, really, what we're talking about is the kingdom of hell. It's the dominion of darkness. And it's true that that kingdom will be filled with the very wicked. And it'll be filled with the very religious. What about the citizens of God's kingdom that Jesus is pointing us to? We see it planted in the tax collector. And in his repentive and humble story. The Bible, it, this is such an incredible book. We take it for granted. D.A. Carson uh, is one of those theologians that people like Ross and, you know, John Bockelman and every other nerd looks at and, and says, like, man, I want to be like D.A. Carson. Which, quick tip, if you want to be significant in, like, the theological world, you better start changing your initial, you better start going by your initials. I'm just saying. So R-Q-B-B, be watching out. I don't know Ross's middle name. <laughs> but Don Carson, yeah, what middle name starts with Q? Hmm. Um, Don Carson uh, and another writer put together a book about that thick, tracing every Old Testament reference and echo within the New Testament. That speaks to the beauty and the complexity of this book, that a book twice the size of my Bible is filled just to the New Testament with references back to the Old Testament. We see in the tax collector, his words are, 
um, his words are this, uh, be merciful, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That language may stir in you something that's familiar. Will you go with me to Psalm 51? It's not going to be on the screen. Sorry, I'm old-fashioned. Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Going to verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Commentators point out that Jesus is being extremely specific with the tax collector's prayer. He's echoing the language of Psalm 51. It's an important psalm. It's a psalm of David. It's a psalm of David after he's been confronted by Nathan for his adultery and murder, murder of Uriah, adultery with Bathsheba. It is a psalm that you just see the blood on the pages. It's so vulnerable. David is brought to his lowest moment. His iniquity is right before him. And he's turning to God. That's what the tax collector is doing. That's how we know that this is a remarkable spark of a change. That's why we can trust that they're not just hollow words. He's saying David had the worst moment of his life. And so do I. I recognize it in myself. How many of you? I've recognized that story. I know I have. Later in Psalm 51, in verse 17, we see how the tax collector is actually going to leave and start this new story. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The kingdom of God is a kingdom filled with the very wicked and the very religious. But the key differentiator between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God is that there is a humility and a repentive heart. That is the key to gaining access to the kingdom of God. The tax collector lived with the wrong story. He needed a different one. And God, in his infinite mercy, gave him one. It's the gospel. We come to our third question, which is, how can we be formed into these citizens of heaven? Because I, I'm a Pharisee. I'll, I, I need to join a Pharisee support group Maybe this is the Pharisee support group. I'm just, you know, I don't know. But man, I just find layers and layers and layers. Y'all, my parents are in here. They're the ones who know how pharisaical I am. My wife is in here. How do we get formed into something? Because if it, there's this guy named J. Mark Bertrand, and he has this quote. 
and he uses this word worldview, but we're going to substitute in a story. This is what J. Mark Bertrand says. We're not converted even by evidence that demands a verdict. It's a funny joke. As important as such evidence may be, two men can, two men can hear the same arguments and they can see the same evidence, but one believes and the other doesn't. Ultimately, there is a mystery in all of this. The Spirit's work is the unpredictable X factor in our worldview or in our study discussions. So how can we be formed? I want to uh, take a look at two possible traps and then uh, three action steps that you can take as we wrap up. Here's two traps. One, do not think that the key to this story is to say to the Pharisee, oh, I'm not you, or I don't want to be you, I hate you. Tim Keller uh, tweeted once, you know the quickest way to become a Pharisee? Hate the Pharisees. Anytime we're putting ourselves in a position of standing over someone, guess what? We've completely lost a humble and contrite heart. Don't hate the Pharisees, because it will make you one, which will make you a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. Second trap is this. We cannot think that the tax collector will return to his old story. He's been given a new story. He's been humbled so low, his posture has changed, his heart has changed. You cannot have that changed heart and then immediately go back to the tax collecting business. You can't, and he can't. Want to know why? Because he was humbled. He was put into the place of the victim when he had been the one who was overseeing and been ruthless and powerful. We can't believe, we can't allow our new story to have any elements of the old story. Something about dogs returning to vomit, I think. So those are two traps to avoid. Three things to consider as we move to the end. First, to become this citizen, the kingdom of God, we have got to change our understanding of who God is. We have to correct the narratives that the Bible Belt, that your parents, that you watching whatever, you just in your own understanding, not filled with the Holy Spirit or reading. I'll be honest with you, I, for the longest time when I read the Gospels and I read the words of Jesus, do you know what I thought? Jesus is a jerk. <sighs> Jesus is a jerk. I, I just didn't, I don't know why. It just, I couldn't hear it. Want to know why? I had a Pharisee heart. I know it sounds crazy to think that, but you know what? I'm a broken sinner. I had to change the narrative of who God is. I had to come to grips with this. We just sang it. And I had to accept and I had to believe this, that forgiveness was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that is the start of that story. Because in it, it acknowledges that I have to be forgiven. 
I'm the jerk. Spoiler alert. Second is this. We have to deepen our understanding of God's story through engaging with systems and formative practices that will encourage and deepen those things. If God has brought you to that place of humility and you have left that one, then you need to engage in the deeper spiritual disciplines and the formative practices. Because yes, when we have that moment of humility and that spark of change, we're different. But you will not taste the fullness of it. You will not experience a life that is so remarkably different that you could be called salt, that you could be called light, unless you are deepening those practices built on humility. You have to do it with people. You have to do it in community. You have to do it either with a, not either, with all, with right here. You're doing it right now. You're in a formative practice. We sang stories. We prayed stories. In just a moment, Dave is about to lead us through one of the most important stories that could ever be told at the table. You have to engage in them. And then finally, and most importantly, is that we have to patiently and humbly wait and practice these things. Because here's the deal. You are not doing it on your own. All of those points carry the assumption that it's the Holy Spirit that has been filled in you through your acceptance of the forgiveness that was bought by the shedding of the blood of Jesus is working in you. And I wish that I could tell you that it's always instantaneous. That you'll be like one of those guys. I had a friend in high school. The dude was like 5'8", and then one summer he came back to school and he's like 6'4". I wish that that was like always the progression of spiritual growth, but it's not. It's more like, oh, hey, I look at a picture when I was six years old versus when I'm 34 years old, and boy, things have changed for the better and mostly the worse. Uh, That was a fat joke. Um, (laughs) It's more like that. It's slow. It's patient. And it humbles us because we have to wait on God to do the work. We take responsibility in it for sure. We engage in those spiritual disciplines. We enact those spiritual practices. We join in community. We receive the blessings and the spiritual food. But we wait with patience and humility. Because when we do that, we really do adopt this different story. It's the Jesus story. And it's not just the Jesus story of rejection. Jesus was rejected. We reject the things of the world. We join him in that. Jesus was falsely accused and crucified. We join him in that crucifixion by dying to this world. And we have to do that daily, hourly, minute by minute. We do these things in the Jesus story because we also join him in that final part of the Jesus story. 
which is resurrection. It's life in the everlasting kingdom of God. I want to give you a few moments just to reflect on that. A few moments to go before the Father, before the King of this kingdom in Jesus. And ask yourself, where is my story going? For those of you who, who are believers, I'm not asking you like, oh, guess what? New altar call experience. No, I'm asking you to pick up your cross. I'm asking you to go to the king of kings and say, are my desires, are the things that I'm being formed into matching with what your story says it should be? As you close your eyes and as you bow your heads and you take this time, I'm going to invite the band back up. And in a moment, they're going to lead you into the final part of our worship, which is a singing of a story. And then we'll take communion. May the story, the good story of Jesus Christ be yours this morning. Please pray with me. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your story. Will you lead us in a time of contemplation? Will you give us the proper posture? Not so that we can fall into the belief that we need it because we're going to be more religious and it'll earn us something. But that we would adopt a posture of a humble and contrite and broken heart that can only be healed by you. Oh God, fill this space.